And welcome everyone. Lovely to be with you all again. Everyone from IMT, as well as anyone from Luminous Mind Sangha who might be joining. Tonight we'll be talking, continuing with the embodiment series and talking specifically about Buddhist psychology and, and the Enneagram. And I, I really love talking about this. This may end up being two talks. We'll see how much I get through tonight. Um, but it's, I, I really enjoy this topic quite a lot. I thought about teaching whole retreats on it um, because I think it's so useful. So um, I'll start with actually a reference to an article by Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is a well-known Buddhist scholar. And he has a great um, article called Taking Stock of Oneself that's um, to me, really pointing at what I'm, why I'm including this as part of embodiment, why I think it's important on the spiritual path. And um, in this article, he, he talks about honest self-assessment of ourselves um, as a cornerstone of the spiritual path and of Buddhism. And that, um, you know, I think what he's pointing to is that transcending the personality and the ego self isn't really enough. That as householders, we really need to work directly with the personality and, and transmute and digest um, the ego structures, basically, rather than just uh, renouncing them or transcending them, can we work with them skillfully? And a couple of months ago, I talked about how to work with them. So I won't get into that too much tonight. This is really more well, it's in part how to work with them, but it's also about um, using these two um, technologies, if you will, of what I'll get to within Buddhism, which is actually the core of the Enneagram. So um, the Enneagram in a way, I don't know that this was conscious, but it builds on what the Buddha did, which I think is a really wonderful um, development that we can take advantage of if we want to. So, um, you know, in the, historically, renunciation was one of the main tools used to deal with, you know, really difficult um, egoic patterning. And without the use of psychology, there wasn't, uh, you know, dealing with really deep patterning, is, it's hard. And fortunately, we have psychology and we have more ways to work with that now than there was you know, when the Buddha was around, but he did an amazing job at um, developing Buddhist psychology and giving us tools to work with that are an integral part of Buddhism. So, and what I'm talking about is the defilements. So the, I'll get to those in a minute, but just to make that reference, I'm talking about the, uh, what's in Buddhism known as the defilements, which are the core, three core um, tendencies of uh, of the personality. So gaining some space from identification with, the, with the, the me, I always talk, or I often will talk about the personality as the me. Getting some space from the me is really um, a first step in being able to digest and transmute those layers so that we can have more access to our deeper nature that isn't as veiled 
by our identification with the structures and, and by our um, really living from them without knowing them. And I think this is part of why Bhikkhu Bodhi talked about taking stock of oneself as one of the cornerstones of the path, because if we don't really know ourselves that well, how can we take stock and how can we work with it if it's running unconsciously? So to me, these are all the defilements which the Buddha offered us. And then the Enneagram are all part of how to take stock of ourselves and then work skillfully with what we discover and maybe see things that are hard to see because of our commitment to our own unfoldment. In psychology, a healthy ego is, is seen as the end point of development. You know, that's what psychology is trying to do is give us a healthy functional ego where we can contribute and, you know, do little harm and be high functioning as, you know, good ego selves basically. And that's, that's a worthwhile goal. And if everyone was functioning from that, the world would be a much, um, much better place that in the spiritual path, that isn't the end point. On the spiritual journey, we um, it's pointing to a direct experience of what we are that goes beyond that. And that doesn't have to necessarily reject the personality, but to digest and transmute that so that we can um, experience reality and also potentially function um, without solely functioning from our egoic reactions and patterning. So just to distinguish there, you know, this is really what part of what the spiritual path is about is being, um, you know, a person who knows himself, who does as little harm as possible, but also can function from a deeper understanding what we are that goes beyond the patterning. And this is part of, you know, Sometimes people will come to practice and their motivation will be to be happier or, you know, to there, maybe there's blissful states that are possible. And those, those are all worthwhile motivations. And most of us do come to the practice to reduce our suffering or be happier. And that's fine. Um, there's also, though, you know, a deeper motivation, which is truth. And sometimes it takes, if we're just looking for happiness, it can be pretty hard to look at our personality patterning, you know, because sometimes we're going to see things that we don't really want to see, that are hard to see. So if our only motivation is happiness and, and um, you know, and we're looking at times that are difficult as maybe not doing the practice right or that um, it's not satisfying. There's a deep, deep satisfaction in seeing the truth, even if it might be painful. And also there's a deep satisfaction in going beyond that patterning to what we truly are as our deeper nature, our Buddha nature. And so, you know, a lot of times the personality, even, even the good parts, the, the good, parts can be obscuring our deeper nature. So when we look at patterning in, in Buddhism, we're mainly looking at um, defilements. I mean, look at the name. It's not, you know, we're looking at the, the difficult qualities. Um, in the Enneagram, we look at both the positive and the difficult and see, you know, 
there's a consciousness that we can bring to understanding that even if it's positive and high functioning, for example, a perfectly healthy, high functioning adult still may have no contact with their deeper nature at all. So, um, so the Enneagram becomes a tool to help us can its original intent. Well, I'll get to that in a minute, but the Enneagram can help even people who are high functioning to um, find new um, pathways to liberation from identification with the me and, and from, the, um, from the personality, even the, even the positive sides of the personality. So the defilements in Buddhism, that's the name, defilements. I, I like to think of them just as personality patterns. It's more neutral, but that's what they're called. And there's three defilements, um, which are desire, aversion, and delusion. And you'll notice that there are similarities to the hindrances. So I'll just say what the hindrances are as a comparison. You have um, desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, which to me is the closest to delusion, restlessness and remorse and doubt. So the hindrances are more, um, a little more situation, a little bit more superficial layer of what we see of the personality when we're meditating, we're going off of whatever our object is. Basically we're seeing our personality patterns. Meditation is an amazing way to see our personality patterns because you sit down and meditate and whatever your object is, if you're going off of it, you're seeing your personality patterns. So it's, you know, I think it's genius because it takes us there really quickly because we can see what our compulsive identifications are. Um, so the hindrances are a more superficial layer. The defilements are really like our core personality patterning. So desire is, is wanting, wanting something. If I get this, then I will be happy and satisfied. And the ego self is basically a doing machine. You, you know, we get something, we want something, we get it. There's some happiness maybe for some time, but within usually a fairly short amount of time. Now we have to get something else. You know, there's, as long as we're identified with the ego self, there's never an end point. There's never an end point where this is all the satisfaction I need because it's a doing machine. So anyway, desire is one manifestation of that aversion. So aversion includes, aversion's a pushing away. So that can include anger, hatred, and also fear. Those are all energies that push things away that we don't want. And they do that in different ways. And, um, and again, those are usually trying to get us something that are trying to get rid of the thing we don't want. Um, and some people, one of the things that's useful to notice is do we lean in one way or another? We all have all three. But part of what's useful in taking stock of oneself is what do I lean towards? And a lot of the people I've worked with over the years, they do lean one way or another. And you can see it in their personality and it's helpful for them to just go, oh yeah, I'm, I'm just going into desire mode now. Or, oh yes, this is really annoying me. I can see it's just my aversive type. Um, and then there's delusion, which is we all have. Delusion really is what takes us out of our Buddha nature. It's our sense of not being 
the deeper nature that we really are and being a separate me. Um, but the way we see if somebody's a delusion type is a kind of falling asleep on oneself. It's like, a, a, it could be a confusion. It could be like somebody knows they want to be doing something, but they just can't get it done. They, they forget, they can't get motivated. Um, there's things that get in the way all the time that could have been prevented. So it's a, it's a harder one to see because it's a kind of falling asleep on oneself, but one can see it a lot, a lot of times on retreat if one is a delusion type. And there are people, I've worked with people whose main um, defilement was delusion. So it is, it is out there. So that's, that is the core of Buddhist psychology, of this aspect at least of Buddhist psychology. So then how does this relate to the Enneagram? Well, the Enneagram is, um, I'll just say a few things about it. And the first thing I'll say is that when I first, um, I teach a year long mentoring program. And when I first did this, I did it in groups of like 10 or 15 people. And I was really hesitant to do a month on the on personality. And I did it anyway, because I'd been using the Enneagram myself and using it with, you know, working with people one on one for a long time. And so I included it. And at the end of the year, and this has been done three times, there's a little feedback sheet, you know, what was the most helpful, what was the least helpful, what would you improve, all those things. And all three times, the majority of people said the Enneagram was the most helpful over all of the Buddhist meditations that they learned that year. So, you know, that really, I was so shocked when that happened. And it really told me that this was something that really helped people's spiritual practice. So this is part of why I feel like, even though it's not Buddhist, it's, um, it's totally, it's not a spiritual path. The Enneagram is not a spiritual path. It is a tool to use on the spiritual path. And so to me, that's why it's, it's a great resource to use in conjunction with Buddhist practice. The Enneagram was originally, um, intended as a spiritual tool. It came out of the first person to really write about it in modern times was um, uh, Gurdjieff. And then most of the teachers after him, like Oscar Ichazo and Claudio Naranjo and others, and H. Alma, Samid Ali of the Diamond Approach and others, they got it from Gurdjieff and there's, it's shrouded in mystery, but just it's enough to say that that was its original intent. But as it got passed on from one person to another, you now see a lot of the Enneagram teaching that's very, um, in my view, superficial. It's, it's in some ways an excuse for people to be more identified with their ego. Like, well, I'm a blah, blah number. So that justifies my behavior. You know, it, it almost can be used as the opposite of what it was originally intended for. So I'll just give that, you know, word of warning that it really um, depends on who, whose work you're reading or what Enneagram teacher you're working with, which I'm not, I don't consider myself an Enneagram teacher. I use it and I, I like to, you know, help Buddhists relate to it. But there are teachers who use it as a justification for the personality, for being more identified with the personality. And then there are teachers who use it as a tool for the spiritual path. So that's just a caveat. Um, the Enneagram 
is a map of the way that our consciousness turns away from the grounded being. It's a map of nine types, nine types, ways of the turning away happening. And if we really use the Enneagram as it's designed, it also gives us a shortcut back to our deeper nature that was turned away from. So this is why it can be a powerful tool because it's, it's, it can show us when we're so identified with things, we're like fish in water. We don't see the water. It's so much a part of who we are that is sometimes it's hard to see, or there's a lot of identity. We assume that it's the right thing, that it's the good thing. And um, it's hard to see that there, we can have some freedom. It's really about freedom is, is what the Enneagram's about. And there are also levels of functioning within every Enneotype. So somebody who's a high functioning enlightened person who's a certain Enneotype is gonna look different than a mass murderer of the same Enneotype. So to say that they, um, you know, they're not gonna look the same, their behaviors won't be the same. But there's a core in there that is um, according to the Enneagram theory that is the same if of, from two people of the same Enneotype. Another thing that I think is interesting, if you look, if you took 10 enlightened people, you put them together, you talk to them for a while, they're not all the same. They're really different. It's not like, you know, awakening enlightenment turns everybody into a brown mush. There's a difference there. And to me, this is part of what the Enneagram is showing us that there are different manifestations of a full, fully enlightened beings and they look different and that's okay. You know, there's a way the Enneagram can honor our individual uniqueness while still pointing to the fact that, um, that there is a ground that is universal, that is impersonal and we are all um, manifestations of that. And this can be a tool to help us, you know, reclaim that, reclaim our, our birthright. So um, this is a picture of the Enneagram. You don't really need to like see this in any detail, but I wanted for anyone who hasn't seen it to just see what the visual looks like. There's a visual, um, uh, symbol, if you will, or map, and you can look this up online if you haven't seen it, um, that is, it's a part of the understanding of it. I won't get into each of the types because there isn't time, um, but I want to give you kind of the architecture of what it is and what it's doing and how it can be useful. So there are nine types. There are nine, um, nine ways that our individual consciousness turns away from the ground of being, our deeper nature, and becomes identified with the body and with the ego self, and then ends up believing that that is ultimate, that the body, the personality is what we are, and that I'm a separate being, and, um, and that the physical world is primary and that um, I am the personality, basically. That, that's where we all end up. 
And as far as we know, there's never been a, an individual, including the Buddha, who didn't develop an, an ego structure. So um, from the standpoint of psychology, it's required, the way I understand it is that it's required for self-reflective consciousness. So um, really the key is to not just stop at the healthy ego, but to then go beyond that, to really, um, to reclaim and live from what we really are at a deeper level. So the inner, tri an inner triangle of the Enneagram, you can see it's a circle and there's, there's a triangle in the middle here. So the nine's at the top and then it goes one, two, three, four, and then there's a little gap and then five, six, seven, eight. So nine's at the top, six is here and three's here. So um, what's important about that is that the inner triangle of the Enneagram corresponds to the defilement. Isn't that interesting? that it, it right there in the middle of the Enneagram and the inner triangle is considered the core of the Enneagram are, is Buddhism. The nine is delusion, the six is aversion and the three is desire. So I'm gonna use the inner triangle to talk about how this turning away from the grounded being happens in five minutes or less. Um, I can probably give like a series of talks on that but I'll do it in five minutes. Um, so in the human experience, there's an end of, there's a consciousness that becomes attached to a physical body and birth happens. And psychologically, we know that infants don't have a separate self. They don't have a sense of a separate self. They do, um, obviously have consciousness, but it's believed that it's more like animals where there's a sense of what, uh, unity, but they don't know it. There's no self-reflection. So like with animals, animals may be in unity, but they don't know they're in unity. There's no capacity there. Well, we maybe elephants and dolphins and dogs and a few might have that, some. Um, but there's, there's a sense of oneness and especially with the primary caregiver, which is usually the mother and or the father. And, um, and so the, the infant will be in a state of unity with the caregiver, caregivers. And over time, as the infant needs things and experiences happen that for the body are painful, like needing to eat, needing to have the diaper change, needing to be held. What happens is all of the good stuff, all of the solutions to these the survival instinct basically of an infant, if you've ever seen it, they look like they're gonna die, you know, if they don't get what they need, because this is how they survive is, is by getting the attention they need from the caregiver. Um, whenever the solution to that, like if they're hungry, the solution to the hunger comes from the outside, the feeding. If their diaper needs changing and they're uncomfortable, the, the diaper being changed comes from outside. They can they get a sense that they're, they, add, they end at the edge of their bodies because they can feel sensations of being held and touched and rocked and comforted. And so over time, as, a, as an infant gets to, I mean, it, it, toddlers don't know the word I. If you say, if the, if the caregiver says, I'm going to the store now, 
they don't know what that means. You have to say mommy's going to the store now because until they're two or three, they don't know that what a me is. And this is when the terrible twos happen, when they start figuring that out, that they've got some autonomy and they can do stuff on their own. Um, so the me develops and it develops in part because of the physical form and the survival instinct and, and the solutions to survival coming from what seems to be the outside. So then at some point the infant and the toddler gets me and mommy or daddy are separate. There's two beings and that is when the sense of the separation starts. The ego self isn't formed yet then, but um, that gets formed, you know, eight or nine along with the superego. So when a child then starts realizing at some point, the child starts getting, God, when nobody's here and I fall down, it hurts and there's nobody here to help me, you know, and there, there becomes a sense of vulnerability that instead of being one with the totality of being where everything is, there's a, a fabric of being, I'm separate and I'm vulnerable and I could get hurt. Like, you know, if you see kids fall down, even if they barely hurt themselves, they you watch them, they look like they feel they were about to die. And this is part of what's happening when they realize that they have a separate body and the ego self starts, um, there's fear that comes up from, or anger for not getting what they want. Again, terrible twos. So this is when we go down to the six. So we start at the nine, then we go down to the six, the aversion quadrant of all of us as ego selves turning away from being going, oh my God, I'm alone in the universe and I better take care of myself. So then this is when we go over to the three, which is desire. And if I'm alone in the universe and I could get hurt at any moment and there isn't always someone there to make it better, I better do it. I'm responsible for my own life. I'm the one. And so that is when the me becomes fully formed. And that is basically the fall from grace. That's the journey that every human takes who forms an ego self, which is, again, so far, we don't know of anybody who hasn't had that. So this is really in the center of the Enneagram and, um, and reflects the three defilements in Buddhism. And so part of this is that journey back of seeing what, and then all of the, all of the nine Enneotypes have a different um, twist on that. You know, I just gave you the nine, the six, and the three. The nine is the peacemaker. The six is, um, it, well, there's different names for the six, the, the loyal skeptic or the, you know, anyway. And then the three is the, the achiever. So um, I won't get into what each of the enneotypes is, but when we discover our own enneotype, it can be really, um, it can be very illuminating as to some of our core turn away from being and what that looks like. And this is where it becomes really helpful to 
start being curious about that. Not that we have to take everything that we see in the Enneagram as fact, but like, are there parts that could be useful? Or where have we, where have we seen our successes? Where have we seen our failures? Where have we had the most pain? What do we see when we're sitting on the cushion? What do we think about? What distracts us? Is that a reflection of our Enneotype? You know, the, the more I've worked with people over, I mean, I've worked as a Buddhist teacher for 15 years now, and I've worked in human development, working one-on-one -on -one with people and groups for 35 years. And I've always used this, even if I didn't tell people I was using it. And just seeing how, um, how helpful it can be has really, um, really made me feel that it's, it can be a, a, a shortcut. And everything isn't true for everybody about one's type, but there can be enough there that it can be, um, it can be really worth working with. So then the theory of the Enneagram that I follow, Sandra Maitre has been one of my main teachers of the Enneagram. Um, and she has several books, what I call is called The Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram. Um, the Rizzo Hudson books are also very good and they follow this thinking that it's really a spiritual tool. Um, and the thinking is that we come in with an Enneotype, which is basically explained by karma. So, um, and I also, in, in my work before being a Buddhist teacher, working with individuals doing coaching and such in the business world, I used a tool called the Myers-Briggs um, type indicator. Anybody familiar with the Myers-Briggs? Yeah, good, several of you. And, and the, the, you know, the theory behind that, I had to be certified on it and learn all the statistical things and stuff is that people, People have it any type and it, or a Myers-Briggs type and it doesn't change it later in life. People can start exploring their, their less used tendencies. So that can explain some of when people are stretching. Um, but the theory of the Enneagram is that it, at least in the, in the lineages I follow is that we come in with it and I'll tell you, you know, all you have to do is look at parents who have two or three kids, or if you yourself have more than one child, and you were the same parents, are your kids, did they come in differently? Or did they come in just as, as pieces of clay, blank slates? No, you know, you see it immediately. They're different, they're different. So um, to me, the way I understand something like the Enneagram is karma. Pretty simple, goes right with Buddhism. I, one of the things I like about, um, a quote I like about this is one time Trumpa, the Tibetan teacher, was asked, um, what reincarnates? And he said, our bad habits. So I think our good habits also, you know, are carried over. But, you know, even if you don't believe in rebirth, there's something. All you have to do is look at it, two different babies to the same parents and see there's something going on there. This is the nature nurture and there is something. Nurture is really important and that's why we have Buddhist practice because we can do things to evolve. But there is a nature part of what we come in with. Um, I think I'm gonna stop there, which means that I'll be talking about this again next month so that we can have time for some questions. But. Um, this is really, this is the core of the theory of the Enneagram. And if, you know, if you're interested in it, there are great books out there and, um, and it can really become a way of
understanding not only what we do, but some of the underlying why. Like if you look at two or three different enneotypes, they may have the same behavior, but the why underneath it could be very, very different. And of course, each individual is gonna have their own um, unique configuration as well. So I will stop there for tonight. And I know that um, Steve has a question. So please, now's, now's your time. So uh, my question was about typologies such as the Enneagram and the Myers-Briggs. And these are based usually on the idea that uh, our personality traits are fixed or at least stable. And in the recent research of uh, Rishi Davidson, for example, as uh, in the book, Altered Traits shows that this isn't the case and that meditation, for example, is a way of altering traits. And so my question was, what's the good of a typology if it's based on something that can change according to circumstances and conditions? Yeah, well, I don't see the Enneagram as about traits. Because again, you could have a murderer and the Dalai Lama who are the same Enneotype. So to me, it's the Enneagram is really about how we turn away from the ground of being. It's a much, to me, it's a much deeper um, pointer than just a list of traits. Is, is, that, is that in harmony or in consonance with the original intent, intent of the Enneagram? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was saying earlier that the Enneagram was originally designed okay. as a spiritual tool. Okay. And what's happened is it's become uh, maybe corrupted is too strong a word, but it's become distorted or maybe made it's okay. It's like yoga. Look at what yoga was in India. Now we've got people trying to get the best bodies with yoga. You know, it's not what it was originally tended for. Yes. Are they doing the same postures? Yes. But the core intention of what was yoga has become distorted. Um, and I feel that the, and it's not just I feel that, this is what if you go to teachers who are teaching the Enneagram as a spiritual tool in the way I'm talking about, they're, they're not um, just about lists of traits that then we can all become more ego identified with. That's what I would say to that. I mean, there is though a consistency that, I mean, the, the Enneagram, if we're evolving as a person, which is what Buddhist practice is for and what the brain research is showing that we can change and evolve. Uh, and at the same time, there can be underlying patterns that show both our foibles and the gifts. They, one of the cool things about the Enneagram that I really love is that um, our gifts are embedded in the foibles and the foibles are embedded in the gifts. And so somebody who is evolves to the highest possible level of their enneotype still has, there's still something in them. You wouldn't say they became a totally different person in terms of switching from one enneotype to another. I don't know that that really 
happens. I haven't seen that. People evolve in such a way that they become a much more um, refined version of something that was, you could see the seeds of it. So, but I love the question. What do you think of that, Steve? Uh, thank you. It, it, it's still, there's still a little thing in there that makes me think, well, if there's a core something, then it is like a trait or something like that. And it's supposed to be stable. And, and, and I looked it up on the internet before asking that question. And it said, yes, uh, these things are, sta are stable. And I don't know, nothing's stable. How do you, I mean, nothing, nothing's stable, so. Well, what about karma? karma? Karma gets burned <laughs> off and can get, get changed, but it's not all gonna happen in one life. Uh -huh. Well, at, at yeah. some point it happens in one life, but yeah. Yeah, well, you can, I would invite you to test it out for yourself. Just like the Buddhists have, don't take my word for it, see for yourself. Other questions? You mentioned the, the Hudson book, and um, do you recommend getting that? Um, yeah, there are a few it? books, there are a few authors that I think are, are good and in this take on the Enneagram. Um, let me just turn around and grab um, a few. So some of the books I think are the best are, are Sandra Matry's book, The Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram. And there's, there's her name. And then this book from Rizzo and Hudson, The Wisdom of the Enneagram. This one has the levels, which are very useful. They're the only ones that have the levels. And there's their names. And also the Enneagram, they, Rizzo and Hudson have a website and they have a free and a $12 version of, of an Enneagram um, questionnaire type thing that you can do and it'll give you your top three. Sometimes it takes people a long time to really land on their Enneotype. It took me years. And I, in Sandra's group that I've been in for 15 years, we, we do the diamond approach. The Enneagram is really only the first few years, but we've had groups of people so, you know, all of the twos will get together and work on something and then report out. And so, or the threes or the, you know, and so I've gotten to know these people over 15 years and see all of the different threes or all the different sixes and how different they are as individuals and really see these subtle nuances of, um, oh yeah, I can see the similarity there. You know, and so it's there, it's very, it can be very sophisticated, really understanding why somebody would feel that this was the right enneotype for themselves. And sometimes people will work with it for a period of time and realize they weren't, they weren't the type that they, um, that they, maybe their top three types, they really are a different one than they originally thought they would. But the online Enneagram assessment is, is useful for at least getting you down to the top two or three. And, um, and then playing with it. I mean, this isn't something that gets imposed on you from outside. It's something that is really, um, you know, for a person to work with themselves to really feel into what 
what resonates and what's useful and to look at deeper, deeper motivations and unconscious material. A lot of times there's unconscious material that can be brought to light. And, and that's where like in the Rizzo Hudson book, they have the levels and that can be helpful too. Like sometimes people will look at the levels and say, yeah, that, that's how I was in my twenties. And now with, you know, X years of Buddhist practice, I can see I've, I've evolved to, to this point. So those are some of the books I would recommend. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, Stephen. Uh, hi. Hi. When you when you say the grounded self, are you talk, talking about the the ego, the physical body that identifies with the world, or the grounded self? Didn't you say that that that's what the enneagram is is that it sort of turn away from the grounded self? Oh, the ground. I'm I'm what I'm pointing to there is the ground of being. Grounded being. So there's, you know, in Buddhism, we look at it mostly as emptiness. Right. Or the absolute or mm -hmm. the, the nameless, the deathless. Those are some of the names that are used in Buddhism. In some traditions, they see it more as unity and oneness. In Buddhism, we, we focus a lot more on emptiness. Um, but that would be, those are all, there are different ways of pointing to the, that, that mystery that mystery that is underneath everything and is everything, not just underneath, but it actually is everything. Yeah. So when I use the term ground of being, that's what I'm pointing to. Yeah. But we are that and we can know that. I mean, this is really what the Buddha was teaching us is that we can know the ground of being directly as what we are. And that is what all the practices eventually point to is really experiencing that through our through meditation and our other practices experiencing that directly and there's so much freedom in that because we know what we are beyond the personality and the body but as long as we're identified with the ego self that's obscured and the body as long as we're identified with the body and the ego self so, you know, this is why I gave the inner, tri the inner triangle story is that's like the short version of how, what's, how do we turn away from that ground? What is happening in the human experience? And basically in Buddhism, there's, there's without the knowledge of psychology that we've had over the last hundred years, um, there was a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk in the text about, you know, sort of killing the ego kind of thing. And a lot of people who have this understanding of psychology, a lot of people now see it more as that it's a scaffolding. The ego self is a scaffolding that allows for self-reflective consciousness that animals don't have. But it's not, so we don't have to kill it or hate it or even see it as wrong. It's not a mistake. It's just a developmental stage, just the way we wouldn't look at children who, when they see their sandcastle they built on the ocean and it's getting knocked down by waves and they cry and think the world's ending and we go, oh, isn't that, you know, sweet, they'll learn. We don't, we don't judge them or think they're, you know, less than because they're doing that. That's really a way of looking at the ego self is that it's a developmental stage though with Buddhism and other 
spiritual teachings that point to this, we can go beyond that. So, um, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, Shelly and then Terry. So it's fascinating to me, Tina, because I, I studied Enneagram for several years and it was always identified with traits, um, but never has it been Buddhist related. You know, none of my studies have been where they incorporated the beginning spiritual, which is so interesting to me. Tonight is the first time I've heard that, that it was really created as a spiritual tool. So it's gonna be, for me, breaking that trait piece. Um, I love the idea of it. Do you think that um, that keeps us held? Is that part of the ego identity to say a trait? Is that kind of what you're getting at? That by calling it a trait, it's 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 keeping that ego identity. Yeah, there. You know, it's been really interesting working with Sandra for so long because there's a bunch of Enneagram teachers in my group that were attracted to working with her because of this, and. Um, uh, you know, she she's talked. She waited a few years to talk about this because she didn't want to be, you know, offending people or you know telling them that it was something they were doing was you know incomplete. But there is a way where the the core of the enneagram that was it's if you go back and look at the original teachers that the teachers who have made it more of a personality typing got that were their predecessors in it, they all used it as a spiritual tool. So, you know, it just was one of those things that evolved just like our physical yoga did. And um, yeah, and the other thing is that the, the just like physical yoga was originally designed as a spiritual practice that would lead one to be able to sit and meditate longer and also to free up the body channels and be present with oneself in the body and so on is now being used to glorify and have the best body one can to be more, more identified with the body. You know, a lot of yoga, I'm not saying all of it, but there's a way that you can see that that's happened. It's the same thing with the Enneagram where it became about now being overly identified with your Enneotype instead of going beyond the Enneotype. You know, the Enneotype, none of this is what we really are. We really are the ground of being. So, you know, to stop at, at saying I'm this Enneotype is really just saying I'm the ego in a way. It makes sense. Let me just ask, and it may not, maybe this is too long an answer for this, but when you were saying that when you meet people, every uh, six can be so completely different than every other 50 million six way deep down under course somewhere that you can see somewhat of a similarity in each type. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where like, for me, it's been so useful working with these people for 15 years who I know. So, I mean, we've shared a lot of extremely difficult personal material and they've shared as groups, each group reports out periodically. And then, you know, when we're all talking, we talk about these things a lot too. Um, 
and we're doing other spiritual work. We aren't even working on the Enneagram anymore, but I can see, oh yeah, there's a little subtle nuance of how that six is showing up for them versus them. And I can see it, even though it wasn't obvious originally, it's helped that person be freed from something. That's really the most important thing. This isn't helping people be freed from those identifications by understanding more subtle and deeper layers of the identification. Does that make sense? Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, I, I still question like what, then what makes a six, like what would make, what do you account for that one thread, even if it's a tiny little thread that you can see that same nuance <clears throat> that maybe you wouldn't pick up necessarily as a, as a four. Right. Well, this is where, you know, I don't have all of the, um, like there's core fixations, core ways of turning away from the ground of being that are unique to each one. And I don't have that right at my fingertips, but like, if you really, I've heard them different times. It's like, oh, wow. That you can just feel the depth of that. It's, it's deeper than um, the personality. There's something in it that goes beyond, um, that's really about our yes. consciousness's way of turning away. So that's, to me, traits are a much more superficial layer than that. And that's what is the same, even though it could look very different in different people. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And then let's see. Um, one other person had a question. Terry, yes, please. Yeah, I know we're, we're at the end of our time, but I, um, I just, you know, I've looked at it a little and I, I mean, I, I guess, it, is it something, can we, do you think that it's useful to try to do it from a book? I mean, I've, I've always felt kind of uncertain. Did I get it, the type right? Or is it getting your type a process or? How do you know you're doing it right? I yeah, guess. yeah, that's a good question. It is, it is a process. It's definitely a process that goes on for one's whole life, really. Huh. Trying I mean, to figure out what your type is? Well, no, no, not trying to figure out what, a what, type, what your type is, but using it, working with it as one goes deeper and deeper on the spiritual path. It's still relevant. It's still relevant in different ways that weren't seen at a prior time. There can be more insights that get gleaned because one keeps changing, hopefully, on the spiritual path and one keeps deepening. Okay. So, yeah, but it is good to, I mean, it's good to either work with someone who knows it or maybe do a class on it. Just to, I mean, I, I guess I, I feel a little uncertain. Yeah, yeah, I think doing, doing, working with working with someone or doing a class on it. And you know, there's a lot of Enneagram teachers out there now, some of which are, are teaching it this way. It's not that hard to find. Um, that I think is helpful. Okay. Yeah, you. yeah, you're welcome. And there, there are things called panels that are sometimes done. Sometimes you can look at them online, where they have like, six or eight people, all of a certain any type, and they'll ask them um, questions and have each person answer. And you can see the similarities and the differences. And it's very revealing. It's kind of like the experience I got with all these people that I know. 
you yeah. know, so there are, you can see those kinds of things online that I've been told are very helpful. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Good, well, we will, there, was a, there were a bunch of things that I didn't get to, so um, I will continue with this next month and, um, and we can go a little deeper with the Enneagram and um, it was lovely to be with all of you and I look forward to seeing you again.